Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, again, I'm, I'm Mark Cassell, and uh, welcome to this, uh, the latest installment of Happy Dog Takes on the World. Uh, today's topic is, uh, is really, it, in a lot of ways, it really does feel like another installment. I think most, if any of you are kept up with what's going on in Europe, but it feels like a never-ending sort of saga of, of chaos and upheaval, really, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but today we're focusing on Europe and we're focusing on Great Britain, uh, or maybe just Britain, <laughs> uh, maybe is more appropriate these days, feeling less and less great. Um, the exodus of Britain from the European Union feels like it's been going on forever. I don't know how many of you have been paying attention, but it just feels like it's just been drug dragging on and on and on. And not, of course, in any kind of smooth or linear way. Uh, the exodus from Britain uh, feels much more jolted. It feels more like lurching from one crisis to another, one government failure to another, one election to another. Brexit has brought down now two prime ministers and is, about, and it, and is weakening a third, potentially. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Britain's parliamentary system, arguably one of the oldest, most established democracies in the modern world, uh, is under threat. Um, the troubles in Northern Ireland feel like a tinderbox. Um, so tense that maybe a poorly worded tweet or a bad vote could set things off. It's really hard to remember, for example, a time when Britain wasn't leaving the European Union, it feels like. But today's a chance to take stock. Um, it's to think not just about Brexit and not just about Britain, but more broadly about the European Union, about Europe, about the United States, and about the system of international relations that seems under threat on a daily basis, and I should say has kept much of the world safe for the last 70 years. The aim of this evening is to think through some Brexit scenarios, to think through um, how, we might, how things might play out in Europe in the next five years, what will Europe look like maybe in four or five years, um, and to, of course, hear your questions and your concerns. Elliot Posner is an associate professor of political science at Case Western uh, University. He's one of the smartest people I know on issues of Europe and European Union. He's published two acclaimed books uh, on European finance. He's published numerous articles in the most prestigious journals on banking. He just spent a year in Marseille uh, at the celebrated Institute of Advanced Study. Um, he also served in the Peace Corps. Uh, but what I think really sets him apart from other scholars is that um, he played uh, tournament tennis as a junior, which <laughs> is near and dear to my is near and dear to my heart. So, um, so uh, it's Elliot Posner. I'm going to start with some questions, and as I say, after about 30 minutes, um, it's a chance for you to come up and ask your concerns and your questions. So I'm going to start out with a with a very general question, which is I want to know what are three things that people should know about the European Union. What are three things, if you had to sort of talk to people and, and say, hey, these are three things that you have to know, what would they be? Okay, thank you. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks so much, Mark, and for the others, uh, Pete, Stephanie, Karina, Sean, for the invitation. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate all of you coming out. Who knew there were so many people interested in the European Union <laughs> in Cleveland, right? <laughs> Um, all right, let me think about this. Three things we should know about the EU. 
All right, whenever I talk to, you know, I teach over at Case, I teach undergraduates at Case, um, so I know that there's probably um, a fair share of you who would like uh, some of the basics before we get started. So one of my, I'm gonna devote one of those things to just some core essentials. I also know that, you know, I have a son who, he's in ninth grade now, but when he was in seventh grade, I you know, looked at his social studies textbook at the public school near me, and there wasn't, he didn't even mention the EU. So I'm quite familiar with this problem. And I know I, I, I was talking actually to his, uh, my other son's uh, soccer coach the other day, and I think he's very typical. If you're my age or older and you know something about the EU in the United States, it's because you're probably working for a corporation or you're a lawyer and you're somehow embroiled in the regulatory laws of the European Union, either banking, data privacy, or antitrust or something, something like that. Anybody out there in that? position, you've been no compliance office at a bank in Cleveland and your and uh, EU regulations your nightmare? Okay, maybe a couple of you. All right, so some of the basics. Um, go back, you know, this is a project uh, among countries in Europe that gets started after World War II. We're talking the decade after World War II. Small in scale, six countries. And it's very important that the uh, UK was not part of the original design. It wasn't one of the first uh, six you know, countries. So file that. that. I think that's an important part of the, the history of the UK and, and the EU. So it's been six decades of cooperation. Um, it's, it's become deeper and deeper, uh, more invasive in the economies, um, uh, political systems, societies of European countries. They, the, um, at the very heart is this project to create a joint market. They call it the common market. And uh, you know, from the get-go, its goals were to create mobility of capital, goods, people across borders. Services is the last, they have four pillars. Um, uh, you know, over time, it's this cooperation project has gone into other areas as well. Uh, we like to think of it in my trade as, you know, we think of cooperation in two ways. There's this deepening process, which is uh, um, reified or codified in laws. They have, it's treaty-based. Then there's sec tiers of laws and implementation rules. And, uh, and this gets deeper. Uh, uh, um, so th that's one set. So there's this huge rule book that all the countries agree to. Um, just keeps getting bigger and bigger over time. And then on the other hand, the projects got bigger in that the number of countries has expanded. Um, so we've had, uh, now we're at 28. Uh, these are called enlargements in the jargon. There's a whole language for people who know about the EU, so they call them enlargements. And so you've got 28 now. Um, the biggest one was when 10 members uh, Joint, ten states joined after the fall of the Soviet Union. It took a while, but 2004. You know, some of them, some of them actually were part of the Soviet Union, the Baltic countries. And I think I should say one other characteristic of this project is that not all countries. This is important again for the UK. Not all countries participate in all of the cooperation projects. And that's how you end up with the UK not adopting the euro. 19 countries have, but the UK was one of those that, that hasn't. Okay, so that's just a one, two, three. There's a 
lot more. It takes a whole semester in my EU politics yes. class. All right. All yes. right, so two. What my, my second thing is going to be, um, I think it's important that you know that the EU, like everything else in our world today, it's a highly politicized thing. So people disagree about what it is and whether it's good or not. So I wanted to run down the Europhile, what Europhiles, why they like the EU and why the Euroskeptics don't. Before I do that, I should probably preface that, you know, I put academics in a different category. We're supposed to be somewhat objective <laughs> in what we do. And you should know that we also argue we can't agree. We've never seen anything like this polity. It's a polity. But what kind? Doesn't fit in any of our categories. Everybody pretty much agrees it's not a state, country, that kind of state. You know, it's, um, uh, it's something else. A little, not too long ago, some scholars thought of it as, a, as, as evolving into a state, a future state, but nobody's saying that these days. Um, see, uh, there's state-like features. That's, I think, really confusing for people. There's legislatures, and there's elected legislatures, European Parliament. There's courts, European Court of Justice. So it looks like a state. There's a bureaucracy, central bureaucracy, um, uh, judges, blah, you know, so there's these things that look like a state, but it's, it's not a state. It's also not your regular international organization, treaty-based organization. It definitely is a treaty-based organization at one level, but it's so much more. Um, so at one level, um, it suffers from the typical problems that international organizations suffer from, that you know, sovereign states that are the members can veto whatever comes up. There's, there's you know, some of that. Uh, so in this sense, it's like other international organizations with democratic deficits, all the sort of stuff you hear about. But then the EU isn't like other international organizations because states have, I mean, I don't know, we talk about how they've reinvented, reinvented sovereignty. They've been willing to do things they've given up their veto in a lot of areas where they cooperate. And I mean, that's, so it doesn't quite, see what I mean? And there's, and there's a central bureaucracy whose mission in Brussels, this is the European Commission, their mission is to support this project, we call it a supranational, you know, bigger than state project. And they wake up every morning trying to think of ways to do that. There's, a, you, there's also, you know, judges who create, who have created rights that weren't there in the treaties. So this is what I mean. It's a very confusing entity. Okay, enough of the social scientists and our problems. Let's talk about the Europhile view. So I think that Europhiles, and I generally consider myself among them, though I uh, uh, will talk a little bit more about why that is and where I veer. Um, but for, so first of all, people like me, I'm a professor of international relations at heart, and I think that the EU, I think of the EU as this major contributor to regional stability after World War II and throughout the 20th century in that part of the world. Um, second, I think the EU has contributed to the prosperity and liberty in Europe via market making, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that also, I imagine. And then three, 
I would say that um, it's a model for the rest of the world. It's a model on how to cooperate, how to problem solve, how to uh, innovate with new modes of international relations. They're flexible. I know it doesn't usually, <laughs> it's not usually associated with the EU, but over time, the EU's been quite flexible. I mean, think of how they've dealt with the UK before Brexit. They made all these accommodation over time. Uh, they know how to use time as a strategy, talking shops for long periods of time, very inventive. And then finally, um, I think that they've done a pretty good job. You know, I, you can be critical of all this stuff, and, and I'm sure Mark and others will be. <laughs> but the this, I think that they, they have a pretty good balance. Their form of capitalism has been maybe a better balance than in the United States between the social necessities of social safety nets and also the needs of a capitalist economy. Um, it's less winner take all as a whole. Uh, of course, tons of variation within because they've also preserved national varieties of capitalism. All right, now what about the skeptics? Well, the skeptics, they usually point to Brussels and they talk about a monster bureaucracy with a giant democratic deficit that eats into national sovereignty. Second, they think of it as a Trojan horse for neoliberalism. Neoliberalism meaning an extreme forms of capitalism. Um, third, uh, they, they think of the EU as elite driven having forgotten other, the, the rest of society. It's great for this 10% of people who can move around and you know, grow up in the south of France, but then move to London easily because they speak many languages. This top elite, so it's, it's thought of as, but not so good for everyone else. So this is a huge criticism. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that too. And then um, I would, say, uh, uh, no, okay, I, I will stop there with the Eurosceptic view, only to say that I think there's truth to all those. There's okay. truth to all of this, it's a complex polity. Okay, so that's two, am I okay still, or do you wanna? Well, let me, let me, let me yeah. follow up with a couple of them, because I think you made yeah. a couple of really mm -hmm. great points. I think that okay. um, in many ways, the s it sounds like the success of the European Union has been re quite remarkable, and in some ways maybe is the cause for why I think many people take it for granted. I, I think some, some of us maybe have relatives or family that uh, are from, from Europe. I had two grandparents who lived through two world wars, and, it, and, and for them, wars were normal. They, they occurred every 30 or 40 years. And the fact that since 1945 there has not been a war and the fact that there's lots of things that might trigger a war uh, and it hasn't happened I think is a quite remarkable feat. And even more recently, um, the introduction of, of a million uh, refugees into Europe without causing war or conflict is also quite remarkable. Um, but that said, I think that um, nevertheless, Europe is criticized, right? We hear it all the time. Europe is criticized for being undemocratic and it is particularly criticized for being um, uh, essentially overly deferential to corporations. Uh, I don't think there's any question that many of the voters who voted for leave uh, were angered by the European Union's not just in, in democracy but also their kind of strong 
view about mar free markets and, and corporations and the weakening of labor rules and so forth, and that's certainly true in other countries. And I guess I'm wondering, from your perspective, has, you, has, has those, have those elections changed? Has, have those has, has the European Union changed at all in response to the criticisms that they've been, that they've been, that have been levied upon them uh, in Britain and in other countries? Got it. Um, so this is the, the neoliberal argument that it's been too favorable to corporations. I, you know, this is, as I said before, part of this is absolutely right. It, the, the, from the very beginning, the EU was, and you look at the, the original treaty from 1958, it's about, there, it's about achieving mobility of capital, goods, services, and people. And I think that when people talk about neoliberalism, <laughs> that's kind of what they're talking about, this world where everything, all these inputs to an economy can move around and go where they're most efficient. And it undercuts social safety nets mm -hmm. and national, yeah. So I get the argument, but let me push back a little bit. Uh, well, actually, let me develop it even more. Because you know my area of expertise is the politics of finance, uh, and Europe is one of the places I look at very carefully. And it is very true that um, in the area of financial regulation, the UK had an, um, uh, a very strong uh, influence over what it looks like. And of course, the UKs look a lot like looks like. UK regulation looks a lot like US regulation, looks a lot like the kind of stuff they do at the international level in Basel. So what I'm saying is the financial sector, I, I think there's a lot of truth to this. Okay. And that's because of the UK. On, but then if you look at other parts of the EU, it's this huge body. I don't think you can say that it's just about corporations. Look at how they regulate data privacy, because that's right in our mm -hmm. face these days. Yep. Every time you open a web page. Go ahead. I, I, I'm not, I guess I'm asking, um, I'm not saying that that's my view. Okay, I, all right, yes. <laughs> I'm simply saying that a lot that's of people, people who say. voted for Brexit and also voted for the IFD in Germany and have voted for the right-wing groups, they're obviously very angry about, about the European Union, and I guess I'm wondering if there's okay. been any changes in response to some of those Fair enough. votes. All right, there has there been changes? Let me finish saying, the building this picture of, it's not just data privacy where the Europeans use, ha, have adopted stringent regulation. Chemicals, cosmetics mm. aren't regulated here. Super regulated in Europe. Your lipstick, your lipstick doesn't have any, in Europe you can you buy your lipstick <laughs> in Europe toys. Environment, I mean there's all these areas. Mm. Plus, part of this, the bargain in Europe was that the social safety net was going to be left in the hands of countries. And some countries have been better than others. Now, I think what you're asking is why has the EU been the target of populists on both the left and the right? And what's being done about this? Um, well, we know what's, we're going to get to Brexit uh, in a minute. But I wanted to say, one of the reasons why the EU is an easy target um, has to do with what we, s we think of as sort of these weak um, cultural legitimacy, authoritative mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, parts of it. It doesn't have, it's sort of, for Europeans, it doesn't have the same legitimacy in their eyes. And some of this is on purpose, and some of it uh, hasn't, been on, hasn't been on purpose. Now, what, so, so it's sitting there, the EU's this fodder, every, in every, it's, there's a long history of politicians blaming the EU for all their problems. This is, you know, who's gonna defend the EU but these meek bureaucrats in Brussels who aren't supposed to ever take on state officials sort of thing. So you've got this, this setup. So what's been done? Good question, right? In, Brexit, in, in the UK, I think you have to go, it's a country story. There's, there's the country stories. In each country, you get a different kind of politics and uh, a different reaction to it. But then at the EU level, on the one hand, it's very hard to respond to this because countries are not willing to give up the, uh, those areas of national sovereignty which are required to build a European-level social safety net. Um, but I think if you're looking closely at what's going on, many things have been done. One of them is that there's sort of backdoor efforts at fiscal federalism. Um, by fiscal federalism. So one of the things, the EU does a lot of things, but one of the areas where they still, instead of using uh, um, uh, <laughs> QMV, quality, uh, what's QMV? Qualitative? Voting. Yeah, b- yes. It's in one of the areas where they haven't given up their veto power, how's that? It, that's taxation. There's no, the countries have not said taxation, defense, there's these areas where they, they've held on to their veto, and taxation's one of them. And so there's kind of, so when we think about fiscal federalism, we're meaning taxes, there's a central pot, and then you redistribute out to the parts. And that hasn't been part of the show, mm-hmm. but we're getting little pieces of that. There's now a shared bailout fund for the next time there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, um, uh, through the back door, if you're, if you follow the European Central Bank, what they've been doing is, in a way, a sense, uh, uh, a type of fiscal federalism mm-hmm. um, through their, you know, technical monetary policy. So there has been that. Mm-hmm. That's more of a backdoor stuff. And then there's politicians like the the president of France, Macron, who really wants there to be a budget at least for those countries that have given up their currency, a central budget to be used. And that's where, if you have a central budget to be used for European-level policy, that is where you're going to be able to address directly. Mm-hmm. So obviously the, the country that is first and foremost a critic of uh, the European <coughs> Union has been Britain for a long time. Uh, and obviously more recently, many of uh, many Britons uh, decided to leave the European Union. Can you give us essentially th- October 31st is ostensibly the date that they're supposed to either leave or reach some sort of an agreement. Um, so w- how do you see it playing out? What, what, <laughs> is, what's, what are, th- or that's the wrong question. What are, three wa- no, it's what are three ways it could play out? What would be the best... Oh. Medium, worst scenario? Jeez, you know, I, first of all, I'm, I can't even pretend that I'm an expert on the nitty gritty of UK politics. I'm like you, I wa- I'm listening and watching the news and I can't believe what's playing out before our eyes. 
who knew? I didn't know how the parliament worked <laughs> in, in the UK before all this. So this is these are sort of, let me give you some big picture possibilities I see. I still think there's a possibility it won't happen. Um, it just might not happen. I'm not sure exactly how we get there uh, from where we are today, but maybe through this, you know, there will be a second referendum. That's a possibility. You know, the Labour Party in the UK just met last week, and even though that wasn't adopted as official policy, there is clearly more support there. And we also know that one of the other parties, the more um, libertarian party, the Lib Dems, they, uh, they're, you know, pro, they would be in favor of that, and they seem to be um, gaining uh, support. So, I mean, it's possible. So one, one <laughs> you know, I've been wrong about this. Uh, I've, if any of my students are out there from past years, you know, I said there wouldn't, there would never be a referendum. That was it, you know. Then when there, it would never pass. You know, once once there was a ref referendum, so I'm sure you know. So keep that in mind. But I think it's there's this possibility out there. Um, okay, so that's one scenario. A second scenario is that it doesn't happen. What yeah. that, that they just stall and then eventually well, they, they get hold a second. Eventually, that all of these, that the pushback from the democratic system in mm. in. So um, in the UK, slows this thing down, mm -hmm. and eventually you get pragmatists in charge who say, mm -hmm. okay, the only way out is, you know, it's probably after an election, and we gotta have a second re referendum. Okay, no, you're looking, <laughs> you don't you're not buying that. No, okay, no, I mean, right, I'm, let me I'm move just on. trying to understand how it would occur, uh, but. You it seems like you don't think through an election. If the I guess I understood that on October thirty first, yeah, there would be a make or break, and that the do you think that the European yeah, well that would require that this is going to be would delayed. Would um, agree to a delay? Oh yeah. Okay. I think the EU would would uh, okay. consider a delay. Okay. I mean, they're more likely to consider a delay than to change the <laughs> the current terms of the withdrawal agreement. Okay. Uh, that's my take on it. I mean, who knows? So then another scenario is, um, uh, I don't know what to, what to call this one. This is, this, is this is things just sort of plot along. Formally, the UK pulls out. But in fact, things look almost the same. And, you know, so what does this look like? We get some kind of withdrawal agreement with all these promises to continue working on the hard parts, the, the, the Irish border, um, whether or not finance can be, um, you know, what's the, what's the regime going to be for the way banks operate across the border, all these like sticky points that they do what has become the European Union way. They take a long, long time. They have talking shops set up at every single level, lots of people always talking, it takes decades and decades, the agreements are incomplete, some crisis comes so they have to tweak it, you know, so this long stretched out process. So the, the, the stickiest issues like the Irish border take the longest, they sort of agree to keep things in place for a while. So again, it's not gonna, this is, this is not gonna happen with 
with Boris in charge, right? <laughs> so this is if this scenario has to also take mean that more pragmatic thinking people come to the come to the fore. But I do think this I mean this is painful this is painful for everyone, but this is how things work in Europe. These incomplete what we see from the outside as incompetence, for example, in Europe, the, um, the joint asylum system that didn't work in 2015 and 16, or the incomplete Euro, Euro, Eurozone. Everybody said, how can you create monetary policy without a fiscal policy? You know, it's not that the Europeans are stupid and don't know that they need this. It's they, there wasn't the political will to give up the sovereignty that that's required. It's always a question of these political bargains. And so what they've done for decades and decades and decades is done their best, hoping that at a future, keep talking, keep talking, keep institutionalizing these things, and then over time, they hope to complete, complete these things. Um, so so yeah. I think there's a scenario where they do this, but with the UK, the UK eventually, their companies will be able to enter the EU. Eventually, they'll figure out how um, you know, maybe the the UK will have to give up this idea of global global Britain, where they um, cut their own trade agreements with the United States and other parts of the world. You know, so okay, this I is another scenario. Mm -hmm. Yes, but on that s on the question of a scenario, one one question I had is um, Boris Johnson yesterday, I think, announced publicly for the first time that there would in fact be some kind of a hard border on the Irish Northern Ireland. Uh, border, that there would be some, it would look in some way, maybe not like quite a, like a border patrol, but there would be some something that resembles a border that would be checking uh, trucks and other things going across the border. He admitted it. I think that was sort of unusual for the first time. What's the chance of a scenario, of a positive scenario, do you think, of an Irish zone being set up where <laughs> you essentially uh, continue to have free flow of goods between Northern Ireland and Ireland? Um, and you essentially allow Ireland and Northern Ireland to act as one in the context of commerce, but politically, Northern Ireland remains part of Great Britain. So that, in some ways, this event might, in fact, lead to a closer uh, political relationship between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Is that is that is that realistic, or is that okay? Yeah, yeah I see what you're saying. So yeah, my and my third scenario would is this No Deal. It's a version of a no-deal Brexit, but I didn't think about... There's been some talk of an Irish area, but you know there's one party, uh, the um, DUP, that is dead set... Irish... Democratic Union. Democratic... Unionist Party. Unionist Party, right. They're dead set against that, because that essentially means that... Um, how many members do they have? I didn't write down how many members they have. Yeah. And there, it's not clear how important they are now with all the shakeup. So I, from afar, I can't really assess this, but they're dead set against this because this essentially means that they're not going to be part of the British economy. They're going to be part of the EU economy. Um, see, I think with a no deal Brexit, by no deal, just to remind you what this means, a no deal Brexit means that this idea that there would be a withdrawal agreement, sort of an interim period, an orderly managed separation um, would just be thrown out the window. And all these issues that they haven't worked out would just somehow 
have to be dealt with tomorrow. That's mm -hmm. what we mean by a no-deal Brexit. Because in this 500-page proposed um, uh, uh, withdrawal agreement that uh, Theresa May's government did with the EU, um, there, you know, this is where you have this idea of the backstop, the Irish backstop. And remember, the Irish backstop is a way to, it's so fascinating, because this never came up during the campaign for Brexit, <laughs> this idea that, that um, it's a way to, to leave a soft border, essentially no border patrol, no customs between the two Irelands, which is part and parcel of the, the peace agreement from 1998, um, the Good Friday Agreement. So, uh, I mean, for me, this is just such a lesson in what markets are. They're so, markets, you can't just study economics. You have to study them, markets in their context, their political and social context. Such a great okay. lesson. Um, so in the withdrawal agreement, this is key. And the EU member states have been united behind Ireland, which is an EU member, uh, that there must be in a withdrawal agreement, and I see no change in that, there must be a, in a withdrawal agreement a soft, you know, some mechanism that preserves the soft border there. Okay. You know, so, okay. I guess I should stop. I, I wanted <laughs> to encourage people to come up and uh, ask their questions. Uh, we're sort of at a time. Um, so, uh, should we try that? Yeah, I, I actually have one uh, that came in via Twitter. All right, Sean. Uh, to the City Club's uh, Twitter feed. Um, who wins from Brexit and who loses? <laughs> who's the winner, who's losers? Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Good question. I think everybody, I, I, who are the winners? I don't think I can come up with a lot of winners. And let me just back up and say, if you, I don't buy the arguments that were put forth and that are being put forth by the Brexiteers. I don't see how separating from the EU enhances British sovereignty. Um, for one, if their companies are going to want to continue doing business in the EU, they're going to have to comply with EU laws and EU regulation. And this means that they're going to have no say <laughs> over, over Brussels rules when now they're a big influential player. That's just one example. Uh, about the, um, I don't know, who wins and who loses. I think I spent a lot of time thinking about the city of London, their fi the financial, uh, that's what people call it, you know, the financial area, uh, industry and uh, based in London, which is, you know, an international hub. Uh, and I must say, for a long time, people have been said, oh, this is for sure, the city of London's gonna lose out, jobs will go to the continent because, but there, I will say, um, the evidence is really mixed. There hasn't been as many jobs go to the continent at this point as you would expect, A. And B, the latest reports from the BIS, which keeps statistics, is a Switzerland-based body that keeps statistics on this stuff, 
they show that London's share of some of, of derivatives in foreign currency markets has only increased over the last few years during all of this. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so there is a scenario where, um, and I think this might be based on the expectation that after a separation from the EU, uh, the British government adopts a lax regulatory strategy and um, makes London an even more inviting place uh, in terms of taxes and, and regulations for doing business. So it's possible the mm -hmm. city of London could be a winner in this, which would be a twist because for a long time people have thought that, that right. Brexit was shooting you know, the British economy in its foot because uh, if that's the right metaphor. One, uh, one uh, other group that I think would be our winners, I think, um, at least from um, evidence by the fact that you all are here, is that I think that the winners might be Europe. I think in some ways the fact that Brexit has occurred has led more people to learn more about Europe than they <laughs> ever had before. And I think one of the things that you're seeing, at least among right-wing anti-European political parties in places like Germany and in Hungary and in other places, is that those parties are no longer talking about leaving Europe. <laughs> They're no longer talking about leaving the single monetary uh, currency um, because they recognize, after looking at what's happening in England, uh, what, a, what they would be giving up. And I think in some ways yeah. the appreciation for Europe has increased. It's certainly the yeah. knowledge of Europe and, and, the and the interest in Europe has increased. And but favorability surveys show you know, people like Europe and things European more now than you know, before, I would also say, though, on uh, in terms of the EU losing out, is by losing such a big member, they do lose some of their international heft. Next, yes, sir. I just wanted to ask you in your training in finances, have you for are there? Can you do you have any observations about how the mobility of people has contributed to all this, or any opinions about it? Yeah. Migration. Yeah, migration. Um, well, let me, I've been thinking a lot today about, uh, you know, migration was a big issue in the Brexit referendum, and uh, we were talking about this beforehand. This, uh, there's different kinds of migration. There was the kind of mi migration of people, asylum seekers, pouring out of the Middle East during the Syrian war, and other parts of the world too, uh, and then, there's this other type of immigration in the UK that occurred by, um, by choice. It was a decision by the UK. And I think in a way it backfired a bit. And here I'm talking about in 2004, when those 10 countries, uh, many, of whom it, uh, many of which had been uh, part of uh, Soviet Russian sphere, including uh, Poland and Hungary, when they joined the EU, um, you know, as full members, eventually, it was agreed they, you know, people can work anywhere. That's, those are the rules. But there was fear because people in that part of the world were willing to work for lower wages than people in the original um, member countries. So countries were allowed to put the brakes on for several years. But the UK said, no, we believe in mobility and we believe in this market. And this created a huge inflow mm of Poles, Hungarians, Czechs into London. If you've been to London, you know this. And I think that part of the, 
the, the populist politicians were able to merge issues and create this sense of xenophobia among general population. But I think we should remember that. I think that's an important part of the, the history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the other part of that, right, is that these, this untapped labor market, untapped labor force, which had been under uh, the Iron Curtain for so many years, has a chance to work. They suddenly have the, tapped this extraordinary capacity uh, that hadn't previously been tapped. And, and I think it generated tremendous amounts of wealth in, uh, in Europe that it really was unheard of. And in fact, many argue um, that, although it wasn't, it's hard to argue that it was intentional, but one of Angela Merkel's goals or side goals in thinking about her refugee policy was this was a way that countries like Germany are struggling with this demographic problem where they have this large body of retiring labor force and very few workers. And the only way you really get workers if you're not going to make babies is you got to import, <laughs> you got to immigrate. And, and that this was a way for a lot of immigrants to come into Germany. And it's turning out actually that many of them are working. And so the immigration, I think, has also contributed not just to the problems that you mentioned, but also to the wealth in, in Europe that has occurred since 2004. Um, my question was totally to the point of Hungarian and Poles. Yeah. As an American Hungarian and Pole, right. um, I've been a little more sensitive to this. But do you see the tide shifting? Do you see that there's a difference in opinion in how um, the British are feeling about the migration of Hungarian and Poles post-Brexit or post this Brexit decision, you know, in terms of just where do you think they're headed, and where do you think they're headed as it relates to this migration of Eastern sure, Europeans? Sure. Yeah, I'm 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 the wrong person to answer that question. I don't know. Uh, what I will tell you is just something I read, which I thought was fascinating, is that there's a uh, a pol it seems to be a policy in Poland to bring back its citizens. I don't know about Hungary, but I there was a speech by the ambassador to the UK from Poland, in which he invited <laughs> Poles to return, saying our, our, our economy is now robust. Come home, we need you, we need your know-how, uh, you're welcome, and who wants to be in this place with xenophobia and they don't want you here? Yeah, so I don't know what the latest surveys are, s are saying. That would be very interesting to see. It seems to me that referendums of this type are relatively rare in Britain. So why was this done and why now, having done it, is this referendum viewed by so many as the holy writ, the will of the people that must be <laughs> obeyed at all costs? You know, what, you know, in when the parliament or in here when Congress passes a law, that's the law and that's how things work. But the referendum is just, some people said they think this way, maybe. Mm -hmm. Why is it? Holy writ. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's well, I mean, it's a... That's a great question. I mean, it's a really good question. And I mean, what I, I wanted to say this before, it's a tremendous argument, very hard to push back by pro-Brexiteers who say there's been a referendum, it's so undemocratic to make us vote again. Especially since many countries in the EU have complained that, uh, that this has been the European Union way uh, several times in Ireland when when there was EU treat, some countries have to have referendum to, uh, referendums, referenda, whatever, the plural, uh, to, um, uh, in order for their country to sign on to a new agreement. And, you know, in several times, they would vote it down and then they would tweet things. So there's a very strong argument there. But I, 
did anybody hear the NPR interview with David Cameron on Sunday? Uh, it was fascinating. It's uh, he's got a new book out. Um, I haven't read it yet. The interviewer, who I don't, I can't remember her name. She was great. She pinned him on this very question because the allegation is that um, Cameron put uh, party over country. That the uh, he was trying to. There, there is a party UKIP in the UK that was gaining momentum, and so this was a way for his his conservative party, the Tories, to to win elections, and that this was a, a gamble, a huge gamble, and uh, and uh, he basically gambled with the country, and she would not let go, and he, he argues this isn't true, that the EU, that the British have always been uh, reluctant members of of the European Union, and there's some truth, you know, there's the attitudes, and we can show you all the surveys, and they've complained, and Thatcher wanted her money back. This is all very true. But what this uh, reporter pointed out is that there had been, in when when asked, the EU did not even make the top ten issues in surveys in in the UK before the referendum. It wasn't until his party made it an issue. So there's that. But I think the question of the, de uh, the democracy is a really good one because there is this tension of different views of democracy, right? So there's the view that if the people want it, if the people vote for it, if the popular opinion believes that this is, whether it's the voting for the League in Italy or for the AfD in Germany or voting for Brexit, that the government has a responsibility to, to carry out those wishes. On the other hand, People vote for representatives, and and they and who again oppose these, and so they say, no, no, we're doing what's in the interest of the public, and we were elected, we were delegates to uh, uh, on behalf of the public, and so we should be able to do it. And so I think that fundamentally, in a lot of these issues, these countries, the issue comes down to different conceptions of democracy. Well, I just uh, comment for you for a minute. In uh, 1972, there was an initial referendum on accession of the Treaty of Rome for the European Union by the UK population. It was felt to be such a fabric-changing proposition for the whole of the UK society. You were going to change potentially sovereignty. You were going to give up sections of law in the UK and make that something that Brussels was going to be able to dictate. You were going to change the very currency of England. You were going to change weights and measures. You were going to change the UK law, you were going to grandfather in European Union law into the UK, and it affected everything, from labor to movement of people, rights to work, immigration, the lot. And that meant that although you had over 600 democratically elected representatives of parliament in, in the 1970s, it meant that the perception was that we had better submit this to a referendum so that everybody was buying into the UK democratically in a very perceived way. It wasn't simply being seen to be done, it was actually being done. And that changed the very fabric of it. The counter to that later on with David Cameron was, you're going to take us out, then we all want a voice in that. The difference is that in the 1970 referendum, over 60% of the UK population voted to go into the EU. Coming out, it was 51% in favour on David Cameron's referendum. Thank you, that's really helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is there another question?
first. Uh, the problem goes back to the Iron and Coal Commission, and a certain Frenchman, name of de Gaulle, hated the British, and they didn't want them in. And the Brits are still mad about that. <laughs> but I think the main thing the British uh, objected to, they had their parliament for 800 years, roughly. We made our laws, we live by them. Now we're forced to join a group and accept all of their laws. And uh, they also don't have a common monetary slash fiscal policy, uh, which mm -hmm. means they c you can't force uh, the Greeks, you're going to balance your budget. Here, uh, I think the Brits, shall we say, like law and order rather than the chaos. Could you comment on that? I'm sorry, the question is, do the yeah. Brits like law and they order like law versus and order cha chaos? Rather than being told what to do from afar. They're okay. like us. They mm -hmm. want to have that person come in front of them every two, four, okay. six years. Okay. And so, so stand, stand yeah. election. <clears throat> uh, right. So this, I see this as a, you know, part of the democratic deficit discussion and... Um, where I, I think it, when I think of this question, um, is there truth to the claim that the bureaucracy is out of control, rulemaking rule uh, in the EU is at a ridiculous arm's length distance, that it's not democratic in that way? So I think in terms of the bureaucracy, I have never seen a study that shows that the Brussels bureaucracy is any more bureaucratic than bureaucracies anywhere. It's actually pretty small compared to national bureaucracies. It's, it's, um, mm -hmm. uh, it's not even as big as a big city in the United States is I think the, the comparison. Um, I think the real question, which is a legitimate one, is where do you want decisions made? And that's one that we are constantly discussing in this country as well. States' rights, local, our decision in Ohio, you know, what can be done at the municipal level? What should be done at the state level? What should be done at the federal level? And so I think that part of, if the British people decide as a whole that they would rather make uh, decisions closer to home, I think that's their right. I think it should be presented to them in proper perspective, which is the trade-offs. If you make local decisions and you have your own rules, it makes it more difficult for you to be part of a big market. I mean, that's pretty much mm -hmm. what it boils down to. I don't think it was presented that way to the British people, but I think that, so that part of these claims I think is legitimate. It's fair mm -hmm. enough. Okay. Is it discussed like that in, in the UK? No. Another question? Thank you both so much for your thoughts tonight. Can you give us your thoughts about the state of the political parties in, in England right now? It, it seems, and I, and I know that's a big question, but you know, we, we've always uh, in democracies felt that in times of turmoil and trial, we've had the cream rise to the top and we've seen great leaders emerge. And from May to Johnson to Corbyn, 
Uh, it seems like the, the Scots maybe have found their great leader at this moment in time, that's debatable, uh, but that the parties in, in England are truly in trouble, uh, that w this could be the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Tories or for Labour, and that we see the rise of new parties. And I'd love to get your thoughts as to you know, what, what's likely to happen, which one's at greatest risk, and who stands to benefit the most, and, and maybe who grabs the reins. Thanks. Thanks for that question. Uh, I don't know. I was impressed. Come on, from the from the from these shores of the United States, you had to be impressed when all those Tories resigned, because I kept thinking this is putting country ahead of party. <laughs> I, I, so that's what I've been thinking. It seems to me the Tories are in a mess. They would be, I think, uh, an election now is going to, I said before, the Lib Dems, which have historically been pro-EU, are, are, they're seeing a surge of popularity. I, I don't know about the, um, it's such a, see I'm not expert enough on British parties to really know what's going on in the Labour Party. They just met last week. They're, they're divided like the Tories, which is what makes it so messy. They're divided over, Brexit like the Tories. So you're, this is, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Right now, I mean, if you've been following, I don't know how much everybody follows the news on a daily basis, but you know that uh, Parliament's back in session. N uh, Boris Johnson no longer has a majority, right? And so it's, that means that anything he does requires some sort of um, alliance with someone outside his party. So that's as far, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what else can I say? I don't know. Do you have any insight into the Labour Party or into who's going to benefit from this? So I think the Liberal Democrats do well. Um, uh, but I think one thing um, may, many of you may or may not understand <coughs> the way the British elections work. In some ways, it resembles the United States model in the sense that they have purse past the post. They have districts. Um, and like ours, um, if you win your uh, vote in your district, you get all the representation. So it's very different, say, for, for example, from a, a parliamentary system like in France or in, or in Germany or, other, or, or Holland or other places, where if you, you know, in those systems, in those proportional representation systems, if you got 10% of the vote, you get 10% of the seats. That's not the case in England. Uh, in Britain, uh, you, you, they basically, you could potentially get 30% of the vote and get no seats. Uh, you have to win your district uh, to get a seat in the lower house. So, um, you know, you know the the I, to me that system itself is a very restricted. It's a very conservative system. It doesn't allow for a lot of small parties. Just like in the United States, we don't have a lot of small parties. Not because not because people <coughs> wouldn't be interested in voting for smaller parties. It's simply the way that we've structured the rules makes it almost impossible for a third party or a fourth party to get any representation in the House of Representatives. And that's also the case in, uh, in uh, the House of Commons in England. And so, uh, you know, uh, the Liberal Democrats would be the obvious choice of, of, of beneficiaries of the current crises, but I think the rules are so structured around the elections that it's hard for me to imagine other parties emerging that might actually seize uh, the agenda. Um, it just, I, at the end of the day, I don't see it happening. But who knows? We've been wrong. Are there any other questions? No? 
All right. Thank you so much for coming, and thanks for talking about Britain and Brexit and Europe. I really appreciate it. With that, close the session. My favorite part. Thank you. Thank you.